Hey there, it's me, Rob Beeler. Not sure who Rob Beeler is? Well, listen to my voice and imagine the person speaking has a really, really loud jacket on. There you go. Now you got it. Anyway, this podcast is my quest to understand what's next in digital advertising and media. Sometimes I'll dive in deep and speak only in ad tech gibberish. Other times I'll step back to get a broader view of the industry. I'll even step aside from time to time to let someone else take the mic and lead the conversation. Imagine <laughs> me giving up a mic. <laughs> anyway, I hope you enjoy BeelerCast. For my second podcast, second one, how exciting. I have Sonali Verma, Senior Product Manager at The Globe and Mail. Her focus is on their paywall program, and The Globe and Mail are doing some amazing things in this regard. I think it's the blueprint for what other publishers should be doing. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and please create an account on Beeler.tech to keep up on all the industry-leading shenanigans we're putting together. On with the show. Here's BeelerCast conversation with Sonali Verma. So I'm talking today with Sonali. Sonali is the senior product manager at The Globe and Mail. And it's an interesting story of how I got connected with her. And, and one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast with her is that I was putting together a session around registration and subscriptions for Ad Monsters for our August event for our publisher forum. And I started doing some research just to find out people outside my, my realm of the normal people to go to, right? I always talk to certain people about these things. And I read an article in What's New in Publishing, which I do like, and they focus a lot on registration and subscriptions. And they mentioned that the Globe and Mail uh, was doing some really interesting things. I know some people at the Globe and Mail. In fact, I know a lot of people at the Globe and Mail. And so I reached out and I, I do have to, to smile at the chain of emails that finally got me connected to Sonali. It went through a, quite a few people to get kind of connected. Once we did a prep call, I knew I had a ton of questions and such a great conversation ahead. And then, of course, I put her onto a panel with a bunch of other people and just could never get just it's one of those dynamics that, of course, with a panel, sometimes you just can't give someone enough time to get all the cool stuff that they could talk about out. So I kind of, this is like my, I think one of these things about my podcast is going to be almost like an IOU, even though, Snell, you might not even feel like it's IOU, but I feel like an IOU. Like you were the first people I thought of like, I really need to talk to you again so that we could start to get into these these topics. So Sonali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on, for giving me a chance to talk about the neat things we do. We're doing at the Globe and Mail. If we're talking about IOUs and stuff that we owe people, I have to say, I, I simply talk about this. The people who we owe it all to is our brilliant team of data scientists. So I tip my hat to them for giving me such interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah, that's that's why I think talking to you is interesting on this, right, is that you're going to help relate this to some of the things I need, you know, in terms to understand it. So talk about what the Globe and Mail is doing, Sophie, right, is what it's what it's called, and talk about what that actually accomplishes for the Globe and Mail. Great. Okay. So Sophie is an artificial intelligence system that lets us predict a whole bunch of things. You know, we've got a small army of data scientists working for us, solving real-world problems. 
So people who don't know, the Globe and Mail is Canada's national newspaper. We've been around for about 175 years, multiple award-winning, really serious, credible publication that takes its brand and its reputation very seriously. And what we discovered is, like most people in the media industry, in the 2000s, we discovered that we really have to put up a paywall so that we can start relying less on ad revenue and more on subscription revenue as time goes by. Like most others in the media industry, we really do need both sources. Right now, we can't say, oh, let's cut off the ad revenue. Right. Uh, we're not at all at that point, even though even though over time the revenue mix has shifted in part because of our successes with Sophie and Data Science. In 2012, we put up a paywall. And the story of the paywall is, it's a story of a journey. It's a story of culture change. It's a story of what happens when a data scientist with a background in telecoms and banking goes into the newsroom and talks to the ad tech people and to the CFO and really tries to understand what the problems are that we're trying to solve and applies his background in other industries to the problems that the media industry solves. So as a result, we have this AI system called Sophie, which relies heavily on machine learning, natural language processing, really looks at every piece of content that we produce and does a whole bunch of stuff with it. I mean, one part of it is uh, decision support tools for the newsroom that answer this question of what should I do more, what should I do less of as a news organization or as a section editor or as a reporter even. Another part of it is website automation. So uh, mm-hmm. I won't go into too much detail there, but Sophie basically places 99% of the content that you see on the Global Mail site right now, keeping in mind brand and reputation and what our editors have trained it to do so that it doesn't do anything outlandish and embarrassing. And that's been remarkably successful. It's been, oh, probably 18 months, and we haven't had a single reader complain to say, hey, something looks wacky. What are you guys doing? Nobody has noticed. So that's been a huge success for us. We put ours up in 2012, which is a time when most news organizations around the world were not ready to do it at all. We were giving our content away for free. I think the New York Times did theirs in 2011. The Wall Street Journal was one of the first to do it in the late 1990s. But not a lot of news organizations in the world had a paywall in 2012. So it took some courage, some vision, and a lot of thought about what exactly we're trying to achieve, because obviously there's this tension between ad revenue and subscription revenue. You put up a paywall, that creates scarcity, and that means people can't see ads. So are they going to subscribe, or are you just giving up ad revenue for nothing? I mean, you can see the you're very familiar with this conundrum, I'm sure, and it's something that we had endless discussions about. I worked in the newsroom at the time. We used to have these conversations in the newsroom about, hey, should we paywall this article or shouldn't we? Because if you look at it from a journalist's point of view, what you're giving up is influence and reach if your article is mm-hmm. behind a paywall. Now, what our journalists came to realize is that a click is not 
equal to a click. So a click from someone who stumbles upon your article once a month on Facebook is really not equal to a click from someone who's paying 25 bucks a month to hear what you have to say. And to get from this point to that point where suddenly they saw their page view numbers drop and really thought about who is reading their stuff behind a hard paywall and what it's worth to them. So that's a journey, you know, to mm-hmm. get to, to think about who it is that you're influencing. You know, there might just be 2,000 people reading that article instead of 20,000, but the people who are willing to pay for it are people who vote, pay taxes, invest money, probably form policy on the topic that you're writing about. So your influence there is really incredibly powerful if you think about it. And and, and so, yeah, culture change is a journey. Yes. <laughs> and as far as our... <laughs> As far as our decisions on the paywall went, that has also been a journey in the sense that we never came out and told our readers at what point the paywall was going to kick in. And we did that because we really wanted to experiment with what that optimal point is. You know, do we set the meter at three or five or eight or 12 or 15 articles. Like We had no idea. We'd never done this before. And frankly, most people in the world haven't. So we didn't have a lot to go on. And the other thing we did is we followed a hybrid model. So some articles you could read only if you were a subscriber. And for the vast majority of our site, we had a meter, which we were still experimenting with. At some point, we, we introduced this idea of registering as well, which would let you read a little bit more before you are asked to pay. And through extensive A-B testing of when to ask people to register, when to ask people to pay, we came up with a paywall model, which has since then evolved even further with the use of machine learning. So is the underlying logic that Sophie is using, is it revenue? Is it ultimately saying each user or session or page is worth X per each thing and then therefore then doing the calculation and working off that? So at the, at the core of it, is it that is that is the, the metric by which everything is, is based? That's correct. Revenue is what keeps the lights on. Mm-hmm. Revenue is what lets us be the news organization we want to be, which is ambitious, groundbreaking, you know, undertaking expensive projects. And before we got to the point where we could use revenue as our kind of North Star, before we got to that point, we were using all kinds of poor proxies for revenue, like page views or visits or engage time. Right. But really, revenue is something that everyone in our organization, whether they worked in finance or in advertising or anywhere else, everyone understood that revenue is what really matters. So what Sophie does is it measures the value that you get from every article. And that value is based on how much ad revenue you get from it, as well as how much subscription revenue an article generates or the role it played in retaining existing subscribers. So for subscription revenue, we look at the lifetime value of a subscriber. For retention, we use the average revenue per user. So yes, it is very much about value and very much about revenue. We are sharply focused on this because we understand that if we want to thrive, this is what we need to do. 
Yeah. Uh, and that, that our, that uh, average revenue per user is something I would love to hear more and more publishers put things in those terms. Right. And I'm not saying that, that they don't, but I think that there's a, a, a part of it of getting away from the proxies, as you said, I just love what you said there to looking at it that way and building up. So, you know, you came to the conclusion of a paywall. It's in some sense more than that, right? Because it's a relationship with your audience and your audience has multiple, you know, constituents, right? So I, I come to just check out what's going on in, in Toronto as someone who lives in New Jersey, I definitely have different value than someone, again, that you said that's, that's part of the political sphere of, of influence and, and looking at investing and, and so forth. And so it, it, that's, I mean, just sitting there thinking and, and drawing it down to that line, I think is so much more valuable than, uh, than look how many pages I got. Right. So I think that that's, that's really, that's really great. One of the questions I had on it is this might be a tough, I don't know if it's a tough question, but it's, it's one, if you need to evade it, then you evade it. But I was curious as like the variance between that, meaning, as you said, no one really knows when the right time to put it up, is if you just sit there and say, is it three pages, two pages, 10 pages, or whatever, you have a system that's figuring that out. And what does that that range look like? Do you have some sense? Can you share with me some idea of what that looks like? Or is it all just really three or four? Uh, so I'm going to back up a bit. I, the short answer yes. to your question is it depends. <laughs> okay, got it. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm going to back up a bit and say we really... Our two biggest successes when we were experimenting with paywalls, the first one was when we looked purely at content. So we refer to this as our content propensity paywall. What kind of content gets people to subscribe versus what kind of content really does well when you put it in front of, say, a search audience or social audience? So what Sophie would do is read every single article and look at the people, the places, the topics, the themes, you name it, the metadata, and say, hmm, you guys should paywall this because you will get much more subscription revenue from this than you will advertising revenue. In other words, it predicted the amount of ad revenue and it predicted the amount of subscription revenue, weighed the two, and suggested paywalling accordingly. And initially, we were manually following these instructions until we got to a point where we really could trust the machine. And (laughs) we said, you know, you guys just automatically paywall it. Give us manual overrides so that if it's an article that we think the public really needs to know about, you know, like um, an issue of public safety, we can unpaywall it if we want to. So that's content propensity. What we've done since then is layer in user behavior. So now what we have is a fully dynamic paywall that is different for every piece of content and every user. So I might read a lot of, say, business and investing articles, and Sophie recognizes this and looks at my habits as well as what I typically read and may ask me to pay after two articles. You might read a lot of recipes and car reviews, and Sophie might ask you to register after five articles and ask you to pay after 10. My husband may read mainly advertorial and 
Sophie is smart enough to say, this guy's cheap. He's never going to pay. Uh, and besides, we're making <laughs> ad revenue off him. So it knows when to not ask as well. And for us, this has been extraordinary because not only has it meant millions of dollars in incremental revenue, it's also paradoxically led to an increase in both loyalty and engagement because Sophie knows when to give up. It knows when to stop asking. It doesn't just say, well, you've had your five articles and too bad for you. I'll see you after a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it knows when to stop. And so so the range really depends. I would say we're doing this for other clients as well. It's not just us. The range really depends on your content and your users. Everyone has their own threshold of pain, <laughs> which is what paying <laughs> money is for many of us. <laughs> and we'd have to figure it out, particularly for your organization. You started off with, with some of the other function beyond the paywall. And so it sounds like if I, I'll give you my version and, and please elaborate, right? It sounds like editors, writers, they're writing material. Of course, they're looking for what they should be writing for. So they're getting some of that. And then it's like, you write the article and instead of what do I tag this article as and where does it do it? It sounds like the system does that. Is that, is that an accurate I'm really probably dumbing it down too far. No, no, but what that's, is that's a good way of explaining it. Yeah. Uh, it gets the newsroom out of having to decide, having to have that conversation that goes on forever and goes nowhere about what to pay well and what not to pay well. It's every 21st century newsroom, I think, especially after COVID, it's all over the world. Your job is the job that three people used to do earlier. Mm-hmm. And so if you have one less thing to do, such as deciding whether to tick the paywall this box, you're actually quite grateful to not have to make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> and, and besides, when we used to try and decide as journalists whether to paywall or not, there was a lot of mental math going on, and there was a lot of speculation. Nobody knew the correct answer. You know, it was guesswork at best. This way, an algorithm that is excellent at crunching numbers that has been modeled on previous user user behavior as well as previous articles that we've published. It does the math. It does it in real time. It figures it out. The results speak for themselves. I mean, it's money in the bank for us. So you can't argue with that. Yeah. And which is interesting because that a couple of things that, that go through my mind as you say that, which is an editorial understanding of the business of advertising and the overall business. And and while again I, I always have to be careful of making broad generalizations, right? But there's a there's a part in my career as an operations person of of arguing with editorial about the number of ads, how we place the ads, all that stuff. And and there's a part where I, you know, keep in mind I've always had the or felt the understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. And yes, it'd be sometimes it'd be nice to have an article without ads on it so it could its beauty can be measured just on its own, un, unadulterated, right? And at the same time, I'm responsible for keeping, as you said, the lights on, right? That's 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 my job. So you can create these, these uh, pieces of artwork. But it seems to me, right, by going down this path, 
you're at a point now where editorial can look at it and understand that there's a decision around it. It's not just the ad people wanting more ads and it's not just let's lock it down. Where I'm going with that is it just, I just feel like you must have created some culture around that understanding that such a tool gives you versus endless conversations about what to pay well, what not to, so forth and so on. So I think that that's that's pretty interesting. I would say, though, human nature being what human nature is, I'm sure that there are writers who look to see how often their stuff goes behind the paywall and how often it doesn't. And there's probably a little bit of competition there. I would sit there and think that my articles are so valuable that it should be behind a paywall. Do you have any sense of that? Do, do, are, are the editors or writers gamifying this? Are they having either fun with it or are they uh, they getting competitive about it? Definitely getting competitive, definitely. But that's what I mean when I say it's been a journey. That it has been many, many conversations with different people and helping them understand what the data is showing them. It's one of those cases where you hire the smartest people you can find. And then when they ask you questions, tough questions, because they're journalists, they're skeptical, you really have to answer them. So Mm -hmm. we embraced radical data transparency. Everyone in the newsroom has access to the data. Everyone's been trained in how to use Sophie and understand what it's showing them. Everyone has a login. We've got, uh, there are no secrets. Anyone can ask at any point in time, why does my article show up as being more or less valuable than someone else's? What are the different components that you're looking at here? Well, I got more page views. He got more subscriptions. How come mine is more or less valuable? And they can drill down and actually see all this by using Sophie so that they are, I don't know if satisfied is the word because I don't know if anyone's ever satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) But at least at least we're not insulting their intelligence by obscuring anything. Certainly with the Globe and Mail and the, the quality at which you publish, the content that you do and the audience that you have, you certainly see this, how this works. And I don't know if you've had enough experimentation on this or I am maybe a, an unfair question in terms of would this apply to publishers of a different ilk, if you will, meaning there's definitely a part machine learning can work with anything and, and so forth, right? But there is a part of it where you could imagine something of a, of a lighter, fair website might not have quite the same, this, the quite ratio. I, do you have any experience with that or any thoughts about that? We are looking at working with a wide range of partners, whether they're in the media industry or outside the media industry, because We know that our problems that Sophie solves are not unique to us. So, you know, we're talking to anyone, for example, who publishes content. Once upon a time, that was only media companies. Now it's everyone in, say, the consumer goods space, whether you sell yoga pants or whether you sell energy drinks. You're producing content and you want to see what it's doing for you. Anything Mm -hmm. that you need to measure and analyze, we're happy to work with anyone. Another example would be, so if you go on the website of any of the world's stock exchanges, they all produce content, right? Or if you go on the website of any e-commerce company, 
everyone's got a sales funnel that they're thinking of, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just about making people aware of your brand and what you sell. Sometimes it's about getting people to come back more often. And sometimes it's about actually making the sale. What is it that's actually converting you? So anyone with that problem has a problem that Sophie can solve. And we're really excited to solve other people's problems because they're probably our problems too. So we're always wondering what those are. The great yeah. partners. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's it. Like, well, that's an interesting part, right? To this, where, and I don't know to the extent that Globe and Mail has gone into e-commerce or commerce type solutions, like just the diversification of revenue, and knowing that something like e-commerce, which there are people who are only focused on that, not just trying to deliver news, but just focused on that, and then trying to figure out what they know and apply it across media. And then as you potentially add more commerce, perhaps the idea that someone winds up buying something on Globe and Mail, their value compared to their subscription, compared to their advertising becomes part of the equation. It really gets exciting. Sophie being the neutral third party, if you will, <laughs> help helps not that be such an anecdotal decision, right? Because again, you would sit there and say... I'm the most important, I'm e-commerce, I'm the most important, I'm advertising, I'm the most important, I'm editorial, and, and eliminating that with some logic to it, I think is pretty fascinating. One of the things is the there's conversation about the end of the third-party cookie, right? This idea that we're going to move away from being able to track things on third-party. And a lot of the solutions out there are talking about publishers should create registration and paywalls, which always makes me really nervous because it's kind of forcing, as I kind of said before, this is all about a relationship with your user. And if you're, if you're suddenly doing this, you're forcing it perhaps where it might not make sense for everyone. The value of a registered user because their advertising will be different than someone who is not registered in terms of the capability. So I think that that's something that will be an interesting follow-up as that comes up. If Unless you've already had some thoughts on it or maybe just take that, ramble and turn that into a question, a question about the future. What, what other kind of things are you working on that are exciting? Oh, what aren't we working on? I mean, where to start? Uh, <laughs> you know, the media industry is beset by many problems these days, and we're trying to solve all of them. We've had eight years of going at it, hammer and tongs already, and that's given us a lot of confidence because every data scientist that we have hired has paid for the next one. And so we've been lucky that we've been able to invest in data science to such an extent. To your question about cookies in particular, the way that Sophie can simply read an article and decide whether to pay well or not, that takes cookies out of the equation because it's based mm-hmm. on content. So it's extremely useful from that sense. And as far as the user paywall goes, or the user red wall goes, yes. It's all about first-party data. So we've definitely thought about it and taken a crack at it as well. You yourself have had a a journey. You started off as a reporter. And I just love to hear your story and and like how you think about it in terms of where you are now and talking to some guy about machine learning that sits there, helps put up a paywall to where you started your career. And what's the first thing that kind of comes to your mind when you try to grapple with what that means? A couple of things. One is that when I became a journalist, the internet was in its infancy. If anyone had said to me at that point, hey, you know how everyone's reading newspapers right now? A few years from now, 
not only will people have bypassed computers entirely, they'll be carrying these tiny little screens around in their pocket and they'll be reading you know, New Yorker-length immersive articles on this tiny little screen and spending endless amounts of time on them. Like, I I don't know if many people had that vision when I became a journalist. So <laughs> it's really been disruptive. The other thing I think that has changed is traditionally there's been a real firewall between the people who produce the news and the people who sell the news. You know, the people who produce the news, the, the editors and reporters, are really driven by mission and influencing public policy and changing the world one mind at a time, whereas the business side of news was entirely separate. It had nothing to, for example, when you put together a newspaper, you, you don't know whose ads are running in the newspaper that day. You know, the ad ops people will only tell you if if you're publishing an article about a plane crash and it's being placed next to an article about an airline. You know, right, there are right. very few cases where you will let that influence your decision. Now we live in a world where I think everyone in the media industry, regardless of what job they do in the building, is much more acutely aware of the financial realities of it. It's, it's not a case where you open the door, there's a room full of money. <laughs> it's, it's, I haven't it's found very it. Much. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can't turn a blind eye to the world that we live in now. And that's had an impact on culture everywhere. And anyone who produces content now has this question at the back of their mind about the financial impact of producing that content. Mm -hmm. The pandemic, there has been an opportunity for media companies to talk to people, to be able to talk about the value exchange has it's never been more possible than it is now to be able to say to someone, this is how I make money to do what I'm doing. And I do it for my community and my audience. And the value exchange is this, or this is what I would like it to be. And to create that, that opportunity for a person to say, no, I don't care to, I'm all in and starting to build that as the business model versus just the, I publish content. Let's see if someone gets it and I'm going to put as many ads on it as possible. That's still a workable business model, but hopefully less one as we kind of go through this. And I think the premium publishers have a real opportunity to sit there and, and draw a new line. The world is full of all kinds of publishers putting all kinds of content out there. It's it's a question of understanding what your audience wants and, as you said, building that relationship, whether it's a case where you send them a note twice a year saying, hey, listen, we're really counting on your support because we know that you support our mission, which I have to say, I've received a few of those emails and I'm happy to support them because I really believe in what these news publishers are producing whether it's a case of just putting up a paywall and you could ask them to pay, you could tell them to pay, you could explain to them why you want them to pay. There are many ways of going about it. And I think you're absolutely right. It's about understanding that relationship, which really newspapers never really had to do 
based on what you've heard so far with this podcast, like you're literally one of the first people I've talked to. What would Sophie say about this podcast? Which How should I monetize it? I'm not going to second guess any algorithms, especially not our algorithms, (laughs) because I know how that one ends. I would say this, that good journalism is worth paying for, or good information is worth paying for. We're well past the point where people expect it for free. When we put up our paywall in 2012, there were people on social media, readers, users, called what you want, saying, why the heck should I pay for this? We would be the ones out there saying, you go to the grocery store and you buy something. They don't give it to you for free. You go to a movie theater, you watch a movie. They don't give it to you for free. It costs stuff. It costs money to produce stuff. And it's if it's valuable to you, it's worth paying for. Well, fast forward a few years. Now we're at the point where readers go on social media and say, I can't believe people pay for this crap. And other readers tell them, well, Good journalism is worth paying for. Well, you go to a movie theater, you pay for a ticket, don't you? So I would say, Rob, make sure you get a loyal base of fans who are willing to defend your decision so that you don't have to do it yourself. All right, Team Beeler, whoever you might be out there, get ready. Thank you so much. It was great to to uh, catch up. I feel like my IOU is is done, and at the same time, I look forward to an update at some point. I would love to again find out the journey that you're on with this and and what it builds to. It's pretty exciting stuff. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for the opportunity. 